Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Glad to welcome uh, students back as uh, they're coming in, and uh, we have the great honor of having many visitors in our worship service to come, so eager to uh, see how the Lord blesses during the course of the day. It's very good to be back together and uh, back in our study of Colossians, so uh, we'll pray and then we'll jump right into it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just uh, again in awe of the fact that you've entrusted to us the study of your word. You are the eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, gracious, merciful God. You love us so much that you've given us your own word. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this word will be applied to our hearts, not just for intellectual increase, though we pray for that, not just for knowledge, though we pray for that, but for faithfulness, Lord, we pray for that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, when we left off, we were about 10 verses into Colossians chapter 2, and now we return. might be good for us just to remind ourselves of how we arrive at Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. You know, as we remind ourselves of the contours of the letter, it begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in, the, the, in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Credibly characteristic Pauline greeting in, a, in an epistle, in a letter, absolutely conventional. He uh, announces that Timothy is also with him, uh, but uh, is also, you see here, uh, basically included in the content of the letter. The saints are greeted, and they're described as faithful, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. This church in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And then the typical thanksgiving. This is not just graciousness in the Apostle Paul. This appears to be very personal and uh, you see the heartfelt character of this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, a little bit of Southern Baptist and Southern Baptist theological seminary history in this text. Uh, When I arrived at Southern Seminary as a uh, visitor, as a college student, uh, a friend who was also from Florida and I made our way up to visit Southern Seminary. We were both pretty certain that's where we would go for seminary. We were about 19 years old. as my grandmother would say, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I mean, we were happy and, you know, just eager and excited to find out what seminary is all about. No internet, no, uh, no website. We knew people. My boyhood pastor, you know, very much encouraged me to go. My boyhood pastor, so much, you know, my, my Southern Baptist legacy, seminary legacy, goes back. My pastor was a doctoral student under A.T. Robertson. 
And so it's just, it's like, it's like a direct line. And uh, so my pastor said, well, of course you will go to Southern Seminary. And that, that, that is a human scale version of the doctrine of election. That, that's what that looks like. It's when your father says, you will go to bed. Uh, that's the doctrine of election. You will, one way or the other. Um, test some sovereignty here. But in, uh, in, in arriving, and, and we drove Clay's car because Clay, due to a family uh, situation in, in which there had been a legal settlement of an injury against the family, uh, he had a brand new Monte Carlo, which was, uh, I mean, it was about the size of Hillsborough County, but it was a giant car. And, and, we, and we went, two Florida boys, okay, two boys from Florida, 19 years old, going to visit the seminary. What could go wrong? Well, the answer is everything, and I'm not going to mention but a little bit of it to you. But we got to the seminary on Thursday night because they're supposed to be there just to visit, to see it, be in classes on Friday. And if there was any one member of Southern Seminary's faculty known, you might say famous or infamous at the time, it was a Titanic theologian named Dale Moody. And uh, Dale Moody had been at the seminary for decades, and uh, of course we knew of him even in uh, our religion classes, the undergraduate, we'd read one of his books, and I mean, just just titanic figure. And uh, so we arrived at the seminary Thursday, and everything was basically shutting down. It was probably 6 o'clock in the evening. It was a pretty uh, January morning, and uh, evening, that is, excuse me. And uh, the sun was coming down the hall, Norton Hall, and we walked in, and we didn't see anybody except a janitor picking up some trash. And so he was convenient because we had no idea where anything was. So we went over to him and uh, I said, sir, can you please tell us where you can find? And this guy looks up and says, nope, well, I'll be glad to show you. And he stuck out his hand and said, Dale Moody. Dale Moody. It was very impressive to me, by the way, that he was picking up some litter in the hallway. You know, the seminary's most famous faculty member. Now, I had him as a professor and I was a part of his dressing team. Because Dale Moody was an old man by this time. He wore these very, well, he, he dressed like an old man. But I, and, and, and I don't mean just in terms of coat and tie. I mean, I, I consider that normal. <laughs> this, is, this is normal for all but sleeping. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I think he had like one suit. And, and anyway, he, he, just, he was not a slave to fashion, but he had a very difficult time keeping his zipper up. And, uh, you know, just for the sake of old man convenience, I think, he just uh, raised his zipper when he needed to. And uh, so we were sitting in class, and we're, there were three guys sitting over here. We sat together on the front row on the left side. We'd catch him coming in because sometimes his shirt tail would be sticking out, his fly. And uh, so anyway, we, we just decided we would intervene. And so one of the three of us every day would meet him at his office to welcome to class. He thought we were being nice. Well, we were really, but we were also just checking to make sure we were all zipped up and, and closed uh, before class. And uh, Dale Moody was a titanic figure. He was a, he was a, a uh, he was a, a indomitable personality. He was polemical, all the rest. He was absolutely an anti-Calvinist of epic scale, okay? And uh, so there was always some awkwardness um, 
The last thing I heard from Dale Moody before he died was a very unencouraging message. I'll just put it that way. It was uh, like, I wish I'd never taught you, which I, okay. You're one of the greatest failures of my life. Uh, a lot different than the guy picking up litter on the, in Norton Hall. But Dale Moody wrote a systematic theology. And guess what he entitled it? The Word of Truth. Okay, now where did he get that title? He got it right here. He got it from uh, Colossians 1 verse 5. Um, it, is, it just, and, and I, I will tell you that faculty colleagues thought it perhaps slightly suspect that you would write a systematic theology and the title would not be systematic theology, but the word of truth. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with a book, the title of which is the gospel of God. But it really did get into an interesting conversation. And uh, I, I'm not going to write a book with that title. But the interesting thing is, is that the one thing I really appreciated from Dale Moody in that theological debate was when he said, there is a word of truth. Forget my book, forget the title. Think of the text of scripture. There is a word of truth. There are not 18 Gospels. There, you know, there, there is one Gospel. The point is to understand the one Gospel, the Word of Truth. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's not writing the Colossians saying there are a lot of interesting ideas out there about the Gospel. He said he's writing about the Word of Truth, the Gospel, which is the Word of Truth. That's actually a helpful argument. And uh, by the way, Clay and I were going home, we thought, back to Samford, where we were students, and we're two boys from Florida, we never seen snow. It started to snow, we thought, isn't that beautiful? We got 10 inches of snow on I-65 going home. If, if, if you, you guys are way too young to know what a Chevrolet Monte Carlo was, I'll just tell you, it's a 454 four-barrel. It, it, it was a giant land yacht. It was made for the road, not for snow. We ended up upside in a ravine about Cave City, Kentucky. Yeah, alive, but in a ravine. Two Florida boys who have never been more demonstrated as Floridians that upside down in a ravine off of I-65. It, it ends happily. I'm here. Clay's pastor in South Carolina. The Monte Carlo fared less well than we did, but nonetheless, it was, a, it was a memorable trip in the beginning, the middle, and the end. This is a memorable letter. Paul reminds us that of the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. And, and then you remember that there's this tremendous um, introductory exaltation by Paul in the gospel. Think of verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, how, how do you like that as a refutation to human will being the, the instrument the primary issue here. Of course, Will's involved in terms of the operations of the Holy Spirit by a sovereign God, but notice here, this is just the most energetic language imaginable 
on the action of the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And of this Son, this incredible Christological hymn, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The statement of preeminence, in fact, the preeminent statement on preeminence in verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church, the body, the church, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. That's, uh, notice how often the word preeminent is used there, just to make sure we get the point. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself, reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write to the church of Colossae, and we know there's a problem, and, and the problem's going to show up again and again, and it's, uh, it, it's a problem, as we saw, that is, uh, is rather typical of the churches, and, and especially in this era, especially the churches where there are both Jews and Gentiles in the congregation, or at least in the area that should be in the congregation. It's very difficult for us to imagine how we would have traversed the first, say, half century after the ascension of Christ. How, how would we have figured out basic questions? Because, you know, we, we, we answer these most fundamental questions quickly. We know the answer. We, we, we know which scriptures to turn to. We, uh, we, we know which hymns amplify those biblical truths. We know which creeds and confessions formalize. We, uh, we, 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 we stand on 2,000 years of, of this confession. But we really do need to look sympathetically and with accuracy at the history that after Christ left. And remember in the Gospel of John, he said, when I leave, the perfect is coming. He spoke of the gift of the Holy Spirit and and, and beyond that, what we know is, uh, the, is fulfilled in Holy Scripture, but they don't have the New Testament yet. In fact, they're getting Colossians when they get this letter. That's, what, that's when the church gets Colossians, when the people in Colossae receive this letter from Paul. And they have these huge questions they don't know how to answer. One of the most important things we see in these texts is the Apostle Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to answer those questions and, and to give the right words, what will be referred to as the pattern of sound words Paul will describe to Timothy, who is in the background of this letter as well. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh. You'll notice again that there, there's the active... Um, Verb tense, it's a past tense in this case, but the activity, the actor, is the triune sovereign God, the Father redeeming through the Son. You have been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you homely, homeless and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So if you just have the first 23 verses of Colossians chapter 1, you have this hymnic Christological passage about Christ, and we hear it as affirmation of what we believe. That's wrong. We should not hear this text as affirmation of what we believe. If you feel affirmed in your theology by this text, you've got it backwards. We don't go to the text to find the affirmation of our Christological beliefs. We go to the New Testament to find our Christological beliefs. The the Colossians, when they received this hymnic structure, this, this glorious testimony of Christ, they didn't say, yeah, that jibes pretty much with what we thought. They are receiving this as divine revelation. So it's just good for us to remind ourselves, you know, we don't look at that and say, yeah, you know, that agrees with me. No, that doesn't agree with me. We agree with that. Let's get the order right. It, it ends in that paragraph in verse 23 with, with kind of the transition, which are the words, um, he says, uh, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul's identified his apostolic authority right up front, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He's, he's, he's demonstrated that authority, but then he has gone into this incredible passage about Christ and the gospel. But, hey, there's a problem that occasioned this letter, and, and all, the, all, all that's in the background, even to the first 23 verses. But now, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the Lord made me a minister of the gospel, and that's actually why I'm writing you now. And, and you also see the transition in the first word of verse 24. Now, now, okay, so there's a shift here. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Okay. So we saw that, looked at it in length, the prepositions, fascinating right here, the Apostle Paul, a short theology of ministry right here. You know, how, how does it happen? The, the, the Lord gives to the minister this stewardship, not for himself, but for the people. It, it's received from Christ for the church. And you can summarize it. There, there, there are more elaborate ways of putting it, but that's, uh, that's how this comes to know. And, 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 and to be. is how we know what it is. And what is the central thrust of this ministry? To make the Word of God fully known. Now, I want to take that phrase and just remind us that the gospel has been described as, uh, as the Word of truth. Now we have uh, a, a very similar passage when Paul writes about what he is doing, to make the Word of God fully known. Very interesting Verse 27, in retrospect, to them God made, chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when you look back where it says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay, so where was it hidden? You know, before we go any further, where was it hidden? It wasn't hidden in ancient Zoroastrianism. Where were these truths hidden and promised? They weren't promised in the Bhagavad Gita. They weren't promised in the Upanishads. They weren't promised in Plato and Socrates. They were promised in the Old Testament. One of the things that we need to watch clearly is how natural biblical theology comes to the apostles. It's as natural as can be. If they're going to look for biblical authority, where are they going to look? They're going to look to the Scriptures. 
And, and that's going to mean, first and foremost, in terms of their reference from the New Testament to the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's going to mean the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, the writings, Torah. Everyone knew what this meant. Paul says that hidden in those scriptures is the mystery of the incarnation of Christ. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's all we're called to in terms of Christian ministry in terms of the, the, work, the work of the church, to warn everyone, teach everyone, present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay, so the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea have a common issue. Paul's concern for both of these churches and, and for resolving this issue, he makes clear in the beginning of chapter 2, He writes that hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the mystery, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Okay, interesting turn now. Interesting turn. Let nobody delude you. I... uh, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay. So, as you look at this turn, typical in Paul's letters, now, now, now let's get to the point of why this letter was necessary at this time, He wants the church to be encouraged, but he's also warning them that they not be deluded with plausible arguments. It's a very interesting combination of words, not uncommon in the ancient Greek world. Uh, Plausible arguments are contrasted to what? Arguments that lack plausibility, which is to say the most dangerous doctrine is one that sounds plausible sounds plausible the the most dangerous false gospel are the false gospels that sound plausible it's easy to imagine implausible heresies or implausible misconstruals of the of the gospel it's the plausible ones that are most dangerous i thought of this actually late last night when i was working on a completely different project, and uh, I'm not going to mention a name. I'll just say, you know, someone very, very popular in modern New Testament studies, and he's pretty well known for, uh, for saying, you know, the church has the gospel wrong. The church isn't that. The, I mean, the gospel isn't that. The gospel's this. It's, uh, you know, it's not so much about the justification of the sinner as it is the, uh, the bringing of shalom and peace to the entire world. And, some of you can imagine who that might be. And I look at that and I realize, you know, the problem with that is this. It's exactly what Paul's warning about here. It's plausible because this particular New Testament figure is not saying, you know, that the, the, the church had the gospel absolutely wrong for 20 centuries until I wrote my book. 
He actually says, and this is what's interesting, uh, an Anglican figure, he actually says, look, he says, the, the church has, has been trapped in arguments it had to make, but in so doing it missed the point. Okay, it's like, it's like, that again, I think that's just an arrogant statement, by the way. 2,000 years, the church didn't see the truth, or for 2,000 years, the church is too distracted, you know, to look at the ball. Either way, it's, it's plausible. And, and I mean, a lot of evangelicals, they love this stuff because it, it's plausible. It, and, and, and what makes it plausible? Well, the best definition of plausible I know comes from the sociologist Peter Berger. He talks about plausibility structures. And he says that, that and, and basically when we talk about the Christian worldview, plausibility structure is very helpful as, a, as an intellectual category. These plausibility structures are assumptions about existence in the cosmos that make the world plausible. And uh, as he says, they, some of them turn out to be true. You've got to figure out how to test to see if they're true, but you can't operate without them. And uh, he says, look, m- m- to most people, gravity is not well understood, but it's quite plausible. That makes sense? I mean, your six-year-old has figured out that gravity is plausible. Can't explain it. Don't ask him to give a lecture on it, but you throw the ball up, it comes down. You jump out of your brother's upper bunk, you go down. Uh, That's the way gravity works. You don't have many six-year-olds surprised that the ball they throw up in the air comes down. It's plausible. Ask them why. You're not going to get a very clear lesson in material physics, but nonetheless, he's not wrong. Plausibility means, okay, given my set of experiences and my intellectual expectations, this kind of fits. This, by the way, is one of the things that, uh, that the apostles warned about. If you're thinking about apologetics, plausibility is not the primary test of truth. It's just not. Because plausibility is a very broad category, and frankly, what's plausible to you at four may not be what's plausible to you at 14. What's plausible to you at 14 might be plausible to you when you're 40. It, plausibility is not the main test. It can't be. It's, it's an insufficient test. Truth, correspondence, is, 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 has to be the first test. Does it correspond with what is taught in Scripture? But anyway... The, the, the important thing here is that the Apostle Paul is having to warn the church about not being distracted by plausible arguments. Okay, so let's continue. In verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 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 abounding in thanksgiving. So, here, you, once again, you have the apostolic exhortation. There is a gospel. There is a word of truth. There is one gospel. It has been given to the church as Christ has delivered it to the apostles, and the apostles have delivered it unto the church. It is what is defined, defended, definitive in the Holy Scriptures. Walk in them. Again, the warning, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So we had plausible arguments before, now we have empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
Okay, this is where we dropped off last time. We had to end. These elemental things. It's it's very specific language Paul uses here where he warns them according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You know, uh, the early Christian rock singers, you know, famously saying, Keith Green, you got to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to worship somebody. You're going to worship something. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the most basic, and it was yet not unsophisticated, not unsophisticated, but the most basic paganism was elemental paganism. It was the deification of what we're seeing as the basic elements of the cosmos. Now, if there is no God, let's just say it this way, there's no creator God, worshiping the elements is not the stupidest thing. Okay, let's just admit, we can come up with our own knowledge of theological ideas stupider than this, right? I mean, at least earth, air, fire, and water are real things. And, and they're pretty mysterious, aren't they? Earth, air, fire, water, how do these things exist? And you've got to give some credit to, uh, to the ancient Greeks because they recognized, you know, you heat the water to a sufficient temperature, it turns into air. You know, I was talking about this one time and said, well, what do they think about ice? And I'm thinking, well, I'm not sure in Greece they ever saw ice. <laughs> yeah, it was the Scandinavians that had that apologetic challenge. But, but nonetheless, you look at this and you recognize it's not the stupidest thing. And look... In every, in every th- worldview, world picture, understanding of the world, you have to have some explanation as to why people worship things. And the primary thing that people worship, if you just talk to a religious anthropologist, there are going to be two things, and, and they're both going to be kind of in this text in ways that may surprise you. There are two elemental paganisms. What are they? You worship matter or you worship gynecology. That's it. That's basically it. Every form of paganism is either gynecological uh, or it is uh, elemental. You end up worshiping stuff. You may carve a totem into a piece of wood or whatever, but you're, you're animating stuff. You're, you're suggesting that the stuff has the spirit. And the gynecological thing is, uh, oh, I mean, all you have to do is look at the idols of the ancient world. You should say sex, although uh, it's... Uh, so, in other words, if you're explaining the world, there's not a creator God, there must be a mother who gave, whose womb gave birth to this. The great mystery, the great mystery is why is there stuff, and, and, and how in the world does new life begin? So, you're going to worship one or the, or the other. So, evidently, that's something in the background of what's going on here. We shouldn't be at all surprised in the Greco-Roman world that this would be kind of a perpetual temptation. And... This gets back to Plato and Aristotle, you know, Raphael's famous painting, um, the, uh, the, the School of Athens, where you've got, you know, Aristotle pointing down to the matter, that's what matters, and you've got uh, Aristotle, uh, Plato pointing up, it's the, it's, the, it's the idea, the ideal that matters. In any event, it's, it's very easy to fall into the worship of the elements, the elemental spirits of the world. For in him, that is in Christ, verse 8, this is verse 9, for in him 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who's ahead of all rule and authority. So, a lot in that. This, it's not only a reset of the metaphysic, it's a reset of the authority. Now, verse 11. We left off at verse 10 last, last time. No. We're looking at verse 11. And you say, why did you drop off in the middle of a paragraph? Well, it's because of verse 11. All right? So, here we are. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, forgot, her, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, notice all that's important, triumphing over them, but in him, in Christ. The triumph is the Father's triumph in the Son. Over what? Well, for one thing, those elemental spirits that certain people are worshiping, believing they're plausible arguments. Again, if this is this cosmology of the Christian gospel that says the story doesn't begin with earth, air, fire, and water. The story begins with the pre-existent sovereign God who, for the sake of his own glory, created all of this through whom? Through the Logos, the Son, the Word, who holds all things together. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer. He's the unified field theory of the entire cosmos. Don't worship earth, air, fire, and water. No matter how plausible those arguments sound, worship Christ. He made them all. He holds all things together. But then this strange, it's to us, I think we need to admit, it's, it's strange. Commentators get to this point and it's kind of like, oh, what's going on here? Because we just went from the cosmos to circumcision. Significance of Christ. Now we're talking about circumcision. I'll tell you what, this is, this is the only passage in which our salvation, atonement, is referred to in this way as a circumcision. Okay, so let's just think about this for a moment. When we were in our last study, we were in a fairly brief, because the epistle's fairly brief, study of Titus. And remember, Titus was Paul's missionary ambassador, so to speak, to Crete. Crete was being riven by a Judaizing controversy. The, the argument is that in order to become a Christian, you first have to become as a Jew in order to be a part of the covenant, and then Christ is the, the Redeemer, and uh, you have to be circumcised. If you're a man, you have to be circumcised. And circumcision thus is shorthand, a metaphor for coming under the law 
in order to come into Christ. Remember, we, we referred to the fact that the Apostle Paul in that letter said, look, I have two sons. I have two sons in ministry. I have Titus and I have Timothy. Just to make the point, one of them is circumcised, Timothy. Now, remember, because Paul did it, because Timothy was a son of the covenant and was disobediently, not his own disobedience, but his parents' disobedience, he was disobediently not circumcised. For him to remain uncircumcised would be to be basically a rebellious Jewish man. And, and, and that's not right. So, but Paul has two sons. Timothy is circumcised. He's Jewish. And Titus was Gentile. He's not circumcised. So to the church where circumcision was a controversy, I mean, you talk about courageous move. Paul doesn't send Timothy who's circumcised to bring the message that circumcision is not necessary. He sends Titus who isn't circumcised. One of the things we need to recognize is that a part of where we operate mentally, emotionally, rationally is in a very modern time in a very Anglo-American sphere in a time that was the epic of both an enormous amount of sexual confusion and sexual misbehavior, but also the rise of a culture of a certain kind of modesty that makes many things more difficult. Victorian reticence. I mean, the Victorians went so far as to put knitted coverings on the legs of piano lest they be sexually stimulating. Which leads to the question, why did you carve them that way in the first place that you now have to cover them? I mean, uh, but, you know, you look at Queen Victoria going, and, who is not exactly, I think, likely to be worshipped as a sex goddess, but uh, you look at her bathing in the Mediterranean. Famous, she's, she is so, if she actually went in the water, she would drown. She's covered head to toe lest there be any misunderstanding of modesty here. But this, on both sides of the Atlantic, this, this modesty means that there's certain things that evidently Christians talked about just rather normally and non-embarrassingly because they're theologically and cosmologically important. And uh, so here it is. So, I mean, we're talking about circumcision. You know, we're talking about cutting the end off of a penis, and it just, it's everywhere in Scripture. I mean, everywhere you look at it. You don't want to talk about that? You don't want to think about that? you got a big problem. And it begins in Genesis, let's just remind ourselves. All right. And, and it's so important that it becomes the sign of the covenant. The Jews didn't devise it as the sign of the covenant. God assigned it as the sign of the covenant. It's so central to Israel as a sign of the covenant that everything comes down to this distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. That's all you have to say. And, and yet, even in the Old Testament, circumcision is not just a rite and a ritual and a surgical procedure, which is a sign of the covenant. Even in the Old Testament, it becomes a metaphor. And so, it's so important it didn't become a metaphor because it was unimportant. It became a metaphor because it's so important. You have, you have Ezekiel and Jeremiah. You have Jeremiah 
talk about the circumcision of the heart. Okay, well, you know what? You can't do that surgically. So by definition, that is an incredible metaphor. And this is, in other words, this is what he's praying for, the work of, of, of the, in other words, it's not just the external flesh, it's the, it's, 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 it's the heart. But I do think we just need to admit that encountering this in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2, it's pretty shocking. If, you, if you're not shocked, I think you ought to be. And it's also shocking that writing to this particular church under these particular circumstances, this is where Paul goes and, and this is where Paul actually, kind of like Jeremiah, this is where Paul speaks of Christ's atoning work as pictured by circumcision. I'll, I'll just be honest. I, th- I think if you see that coming, you're lying to yourself. I think it's so shocking that you go back at it and you say, wow, you know, of, of all the pictures I would pick up of Christ's atoning work, hadn't thought of that one, and, and of all the churches to whom to write the letter with this point, Asia Minor? Okay, so evidently this is a part of the background but this is not just written for cause. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit writing for us. So we better pay some pretty close attention here. In Him, in Christ also, you were circumcised. Who's you? Who's you? He's writing to the church. Notice back, just remind yourself. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And this means brothers and sisters. No doubt about that. This is not just written to the men. This is written to the church. So, in him also you were circumcised. It's the strangest thing. If, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been circumcised. But it's with a circumcision made without hands... By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And this relates to us, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want to tell you how to understand that. But I do not have a sufficient explanation. This is a notoriously difficult passage. The most notoriously difficult part is right in the center. Now, try to follow the logic because I think you're going to see where the logic, the, well, just see if you see it. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Makes perfect sense. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, so let's just... Let's just, we're not saved 
when we talk about the saving work of Christ, let's put it this way. When we talk about the saving work of Christ, we, we, we talk about his, his perfect obedience, his passive and active obedience, but we talk about his death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul himself, when he summarizes the gospel, will we'll go right to death, burial, resurrection. Not circumcision. Okay, so... So what does it mean? What does it mean when circumcision is pictured this way? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made with our hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You'll notice the next thing is having been buried with him in baptism. Okay, if we are talking about the saving work of Christ... And, and, and we are talking about his perfect obedience as essential to that atoning work. And it was both active and passive obedience. Then in that sense, the circumcision of Jesus in the temple, or at the temple, was part of his saving work. But in the same sense that everything he did in his perfect obedience is central to his work. Paul's picking it up here. If uh, Professor Greg Beale were with us, dear friend, wonderful, faithful scholar, he, he makes the not implausible argument that the best way to understand this is that the imagery of the Christological passages we just read and he demonstrates this, I think, pretty convincingly, they bring about the archetype of the temple, of temple worship that's very much in the background with Christ now, this temple. And thus, where was Jesus circumcised? In the temple. This is a metaphor you can't stretch too far, uh, simply because it, it just, and, and it's probably very very much a part of the importance of this text that we look at the fact it's singular as it is and it's not elaborate. It's, not, it, it's, it's to get our attention and to give us a picture. But it's bigger than the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph in taking Christ who by his passive obedience was circumcised in the temple. It's far more, it appears, a picture of what happened on the cross. But you have to be very careful there. You can't stretch that metaphor too far if we're talking about the cross because Christ did not put off his flesh. This is not, it's the ancient heresy of docetism. You know, Christ did not, in the resurrection, escape the flesh. But then again, you think about circumcision, and again, we've got to just get physical for a moment. It's not the casting off of the entire flesh. It's the casting off of this in order for there to be a covenant sign very small part of the flesh. But that's, it's just, a, it, it's a metaphor, and like so often is the case, metaphors are to get our attention, and they are to instruct us, but we do not build a Christology out of this passage. So we exult in it. For one thing, remember, this is addressed to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to, those, the, to the saints in the church, and this means, guess what? We're all circumcised in Christ, which has to mean, at the very least, metaphorically, 
Those who are the redeemed are in the new covenant by Christ, with Christ. The covenant sign of the old covenant was circumcision. The covenant sign of the new covenant is Christ. I can imagine that the uh, home Bible groups in Colossae had to spend some time trying to think through this passage. No doubt that's a part of the Holy Spirit's intention as well. But the way it concludes clarifies. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Well, you can understand that. It's not physical. It's it's in the, the unregenerate, sinful, rebellious nature of our flesh. God made alive together with him, that is with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How did he do that? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the foreskin. No, no, forget that now. This is, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I am incredibly thankful for this passage. Thankful for the struggle required and thinking about how we understand this passage. I'm thankful for the picture of our salvation that has been given to us here. I'm also thankful for the discomfort and the awkwardness in this. And I just want to tell you, if this kind of passage feels a little awkward and Difficult for us to understand in 2023, here's the shocking thing. It would not have been easier to understand in the second half of the first century when the Christians in Colossae received it. But how did they receive it? They received it as the Word of God through the Apostle Paul, as the Word of truth, and they received it with joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word, and for passages like this that require us to just step back in awe of what you reveal about what Christ has done for us, what you have done in Christ for us. Father, we thank you that every single one who's now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is in this sense circumcised, not as a sign of the covenant of old, but of the heart and of the new covenant in Christ. Father, in him we stand. Ground us in this gospel. Make us faithful to Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.